0: I lived in an apartment, the number of it was 234, with my ex for about 34 months. Since I left my parents' house back in probably 1999, I think that's the longest single place I've ever lived. I moved out of that place oddly 14 years to the day of my graduation from college after we got divorced. The new place was number 328 on the other side of the street, and for a chunk of time I lived there, I classified myself as lost. When I eventually donated the couch in 328 to the Salvation Army, there were cigarette burns on it. You probably get the picture. Well, back in apartment 234, I was writing virtually every day and starting to get some traffic and some traction as a freelancer. In that apartment, I appeared on one podcast taping, and the lady I taped with never actually ran it. A few months into this apartment 328 deal, I appeared on this guy Paul Millard's podcast. He talks about work in different ways and has a cool approach to what success even is. His newsletter, which usually hits on Saturdays, is one of the best out there if you care about issues like work, learning, success, etc. So now that I'm doing this podcast, I wanted to have him on. That's what this episode is. By the way, now I live in an apartment number at 603, but I'm still interested in these types of work and life and success and failure and future issues, and I hope you are too. Godspeed, and let's get to it.
1: Strategy consultant for 10 years in the workplace. Grew up in a small town in uh, Columbia, Connecticut. And I think always in my career, I had this kind of long-term anti-vision of not wanting to be stuck in an office, uh, working full time, taking two weeks of vacation a year and not kind of having the flexibility and freedom to what I discovered later is I wanted to work on a bunch of different things, but, uh, just kind of being stuck. Uh, so it always navigated my career in terms of like having a lot of options I think there was probably a, a dark side of that of getting a little too caught up in just career success. Uh, but I was set up really well to take the leap to self-employment, which I did about two and a half years ago, because I had basically at every step of my junction, even though it looks like I have this like very clear, successful career path, people told me I was making a mistake at every step of the way, like leaving jobs before I was getting promoted, taking pay cuts. And basically I was just pursuing things I was pretty excited and interested about, uh, which has been really useful for being self-employed and having to navigate figuring out all sorts of gigs and uh, work. Yeah.
0: So um, we've talked about this like on other when I've taped on yours and uh, you just did a, Guest turn on this Holloway good work newsletter they send out on Sunday, which is usually a pretty good newsletter. And also, yours is very good. It's like probably in the top three of the ones I receive. So I'll, I'll give a shameless plug to that too. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, okay, so I, I found the same thing sometimes in my career arc, insofar as that even really is a thing anymore. But like, one thing you talk about periodically is when you were doing business school stuff the older like quote-unquote senior professionals were saying like don't follow this path even though people were almost blindly following that path and you've talked a lot about how the career development arc uh, has changed pretty much like a thousand percent in maybe the last 25 years so why do you, do you just think it's because change is hard for people? Like, why do you think we hold on to some of these assumptions about what a career should look like? Because it was passed from previous generations, or we just can't accept change? Like, I always wonder why even people that are quote-unquote woke about other things, it feels like people about their careers they just have yeah. this, like they just like subscribe to these like 1967 notions that have no place in almost 2020 but why do you think it's so hard for people to make that jump
1: yeah that's i've never heard a frame like that i like that so many people are so conscious of so many things now except work yeah it's it's like the, it is the last frontier man like um, you and can... that's yeah <laughs>
0: That's what makes
1: me so curious about it. Yeah,
0: me too. You can have conversations that get really deep about a societal thing with somebody. And then if you try to pivot that to career, they're going to be like, well, I need to be in this role for four more years and then I'll get advanced. (laughs) And it's like, man, you were just capable of like a bunch of nuance in this other space. And now you're like, well, I have to stay in this W2 role with this corporation because it's a growth industry and like if Dan leaves that'll position me to do and I'm like (laughs) it's like none of these notions like none of them like really make sense and like I think we've, we've seen for like 30 40 years that a lot of our assumptions about individual career progression are wrong right and yet we still cling to them so I guess like I always wonder why people aren't capable of like I mean I shouldn't say people aren't capable of it because obviously you're seeing a rise in like gig and self-employment so people are capable of it whether they got forced into it via a layoff or they decided to do it but like why do you think like consciousness about work feels so low
1: Yeah. And this is what draws me to write about it because I don't think it's a simple answer. There's a lot of people who write about the future of work that write just like cultures are bad or careers are bad. Right. And I, I think it's actually multifaceted and super complex. And the deeper I went, the deeper I kept going, right. The sea gets deeper as you go in it is like some Chinese proverb, but, um, I think it dates back to the, in the 1950s and 1960s, the Western world had this period of unbridled growth, like four to 5% GDP growth. Now, the difference between from now 2% to 4% GDP growth is not 2%. It is a hundred percent different, right? And it's exponential. So during that time, basically a small number of just men who were working were showing up at companies and moving up and reaping the rewards and getting the fulfillment outside of work in a really cookie cutter, like almost guaranteed way. And I think a lot of our ideas around careers got cemented around that Mm -hmm. because that was also the first time when the majority of workers became knowledge workers for the first time. I think it was in the 1950s. Peter Drucker started writing about the idea of the knowledge worker around that time. So I think that's piece one of it. Yeah. I think piece two is that our identities have become closely linked with what we do at work, especially Mm -hmm. for that knowledge worker professional class. And to challenge any piece of the career is not just like analyzing climate change and going deep and learning about it, right? It's really to potentially throw yourself into an existential crisis. Right, I'd I'd agree with that, yeah. So (laughs) I, I think that's piece two. Um yeah, yeah the identity ahead. the identity component is
0: massive and I think people realize it internally but they downplay it in like external conversation cuz they want to believe like oh I'm more than my job and ideally you are but it's like if the job isn't there um a lot of people feel like that existential crisis that you reference right and I think that that's actually kind of a hard um, thing for people in their late 20s to like early 40s Uh, because if you you read anything about salary but like actual like thought leadership like data set salary stuff like most people salary potential and this is different now because there's more people going and doing self and like technology has made like having a client in like Romania easier, you know, but right. in a standard path, like most people's salary uh, potential or arc is probably like almost completely set by like age 27. Right. <laughs> and then you have like, you have these existential crises cause it's like, Oh man, I thought I was in this good job, good industry. And then like, three quarters happen that are negative and like companies the loyalty thing cuts both ways like i don't like people that make the argument that it's only companies not being loyal like it's true employees are also not loyal like we kind of lost the trust loyalty thing in the last 20 to 30 years um one thing i was gonna ask too because i feel like this is under discussed and it tends to get politicized or like people start screaming at each other when you see this in like the social realm. But what do you think like just the sheer addition of women to more than two or three roles in a workplace has done? Cause I actually think it's good at the broadest sense. Cause I feel like I've had shitty female bosses, but in general, I think you get a, higher degree of empathy you know that's like an off-sided statistic but i also think it's like we've kind of created this like weird tension that goes unacknowledged because like there are a lot of men that feel threatened and like if they came from a certain belief set it feels like they're always like oh well this person couldn't possibly perform like me so like just women not being school teachers or receptionists or like staffing HR. I wouldn't say it's like a third factor in what we're discussing. I don't think it's that big, but I do think it's been like a, I don't think we talk about it in the right terms or like analyze it enough. So I just wondered if you had Uh, any thoughts on what you think that's done to everything.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if that's a factor. I think there's been a steady rise in women joining the workforce, especially in professional work. Right. I think this has had the effect on a lot of, um, at the same time, a lot of like typical male jobs, a lot of them have decreased like manufacturing jobs. Right. I don't think those, I don't think those are related. Right. I think, um, those are separate issues. I think, with more women entering the workforce, you've seen that kind of builds on the second point I was saying, which is that more and more people's identity is surrounded around work. And, um, it is just less normal for people to say, Hey, I'm going to stay home and raise a family. Right. There was, there's no, there hasn't been an offset of more men saying, all right, I'm going to step aside and raise a family. Right. Right. Work. Work has just absorbed more human time and human labor. Yeah. Um, do you think that? The, it,
0: do you think that is a, a compensation versus like rising cost of goods issue, or do you think it's just like men don't necessarily want to step aside because the work identity might be stronger in males? I mean, I yeah. know a lot. I know a lot of people where the two people would have yeah, to work,
1: sure. right? Just because I'm, I'm fine with stepping away, I, I think those <laughs> men who are self-employed yeah. are more comfortable with kind of uh, alternate ways of working and living. I agree. Um, but
0: actually, I actually yeah, just, just... now go ahead and then I'll I'll give an anecdote too.
1: Well, I was gonna say I think like I think a lot has been said about gender. I think women entering the workforce has been dramatically uh, beneficial, just yeah. in terms of improving the cultures. Um, giving men, especially different models of not being brutal dictators in the workforce <laughs> and, um, just creating, bringing more ideas to the table. I think the, the third element of what I was all saying, and this is probably the final one is that work is pretty cool in our twenties and early life. And I think yep. this is what you're talking about in this podcast is this like WTF period of what the fuck happened to my life right right right. I like when you first enter the workforce you actually learn a ton of stuff you're almost entering this mode when you learn how to write you learn how to communicate you learn how to solve problems you learn how to mediate conflict you learn how to put stuff in the world that makes money right yeah so you start getting all this positive reaction added on that you're typically young and people are single right so you have a you just go to work and then all your time and friends are oriented around supporting that job. Everything's pretty great. Slowly that starts drifting away. People either sink more into work or they move to the burbs, move back to where they came from. Yep. Um, And suddenly your life has shifted, except you're still centered around work, but you don't have all these easy to opt into benefits like yep. the happy hours that pop up or you, all your friends that are just orienting around the next vacation or weekend trips. Right. It's um, and suddenly you just have like your immediate family, or you're alone for many people, and it's that and work, and you're like, what the heck? And yeah, then you have to get to the game of like figuring out. What is meaning in life? Which is a damn hard question to figure out.
0: That's like a lot of people just bury their head in the sand about that question, to be honest. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I
1: think think work is good for that, right? It helps people avoid asking the tough questions, right? I think I wrote that in the guest post for the Holloway blog this week. I said, why are we so confused? Or, Or why do we... Um, all claim to want to live lives like good lives, right? Okay, and in the the way. thing that so often gets in the way. Yeah, I think I um, read this that part of it. Yeah, and this goes back to your original question, which is that like nobody seems to be able to talk about these things. Yeah. And so I'm basically just trying to figure out how to talk about them by reading religion, reading history, reading philosophy, reading. Uh, economics and trying to tie all these pieces together.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean that's obviously a noble quest. But to your point, man, I I have this friend that works for a NASCAR team driver, so he's based out of Charlotte, and they have a race uh, in Texas near where I'm at this weekend. So I saw him last night, and so I'm 38 he's like maybe four days older than me. So he's like same age, but our birthdays are in a couple weeks. So anyway, we're like both about to be 39. And I would say like actively when we were like 27, we were physically in the same place and had like roughly adjacent, like living situations and jobs. Right. and, It's like, man, I was even thinking, like, walking home from this thing last night. It's like, okay, I communicate with people from that era. So, I guess we're talking, like, 11, 12 years ago. I communicate with people from that era or, like, email them and I'll periodically see them at stuff. But, like, once you get out of that, like, wedding cycle, um, it's like, to your point, like, man, some people sink into work. Some people sink into family. Some people like are alone. Some people like go abroad or go back to where they came from or whatever. And it's like, you're kind of like how you viewed work and the corresponding ecosystem that is your life tied to that, how you viewed it at 24 and how you view it at like 35 are almost like two entirely different worlds, you know? Um, And I read something in Boston globe last year that, um, I forget who ran this study, and I don't even know how you empirically could prove this, but it was saying that 36 is the loneliest year for men. Uh, oh, yeah. and I mean, I, I, could, I could probably pick out other years that I feel like would qualify. Uh, but if you think about it, like one thing the article was saying is, in a traditional sense, you're probably... Like, if you go off of averages, you'd be about 13, 14 years into a career. So you'd probably have a good understanding of, like, this is where my ceiling is. Most people, like, if they chose to get married, they're, like, five, six years into a marriage. They may have, like, one or two kids. So it's, like, whether you're together in a relationship or alone – it does feel like an age where you start to get to this purpose question where it's like, okay, well, I'm probably given modern medicine going to be alive another 50 years or more, which is longer than I've already lived. And it's like, you start to see like, Oh, like this is how things are. This is where my realistic ceiling is. And I could see that um, if you're not, trying to find a purposed meaning discussion through something I could see that be like a very lonely time. And I feel like at 36, I definitely felt all that stuff, you know? So I think it is interesting. Like your point is real good. Is that like work at 24 is like, it's almost like joyous. And then working like your mid thirties, you're like, what is the purpose of all this?
1: Yeah, right. I think you have those easy promotions early in your career and then you do kind of figure out, okay, what is my ceiling here? And if you're not moving up, it's like, what, well, what the hell am I doing here? And I I think my path, I really was kind of fighting a war against that. Yeah, I wanted to go in a different direction. And I think for me, becoming self-employed was just more of like, all right, let's go on an adventure, shake things up and see where life takes me.
0: So if you were going to give advice to somebody about, and I know you have courses and stuff on this, so you can borrow from that. But if you were going to give advice to somebody that feels they're kind of like on the ledge of trying to do something for themselves or shake things up or even leave the country or whatever, what, what are some things that you would pull out initially? Like what should they be thinking about? And I know the first place people usually go is money, but I know you've said in different things you've put out that that really shouldn't be the first place that you go mentally. So, like, what – if somebody was, like, 35, 36, and they're like, man, I need to change some stuff up, like, where would you suggest their mental modeling should start?
1: Yeah, I think – I have a lot of people that reach out to me and they say, help me get a new job, right? Or I need to figure out what to do next. And Mm -hmm. you discover quickly that it's much deeper than that. It's much of what we were just talking about. And I think what I find is that for many people, they're just not willing to even explore the deeper questions. And that's fine. Like, I I don't want to like tango with those people it's a little boring. Like I can help them get a new job, but so can a lot of other people. Um, I think the things I try to get them to do is just dream in a new direction. And that sounds kooky, right? But one simple thing is just write down on a piece of paper, what are 20 dreams I have for the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. Like 20 experiences I want to have It's hard to come up with more than three to five work-related ones, right? And suddenly people start realizing they have these things they want to do, whether they had these ideas when they were younger, in college, as a kid. um, And just start doing one of them in the next, like, three months. I think other things are just to reflect on your values. Most people, when they say what matters to them, it's not actually success or money. There's a study on, on success. I had this one in my newsletter a few weeks ago. It's people put like having a family, relationships, love in their top five.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they think society values money, status, power. Um, but nobody's actually like ranking these in their own list. So like double down on some of those things at the expense of your job. Like, and most people are not willing to do that because their identity is so closely tied to work, right? Like compromise on your day job to go meet a buddy for work, bail out early, like negotiate for unpaid leave to go visit a friend who's living in another country. Um, right. It's uh, it's all these things. And um, yeah, I think it just takes a bit of bravery and courage, which is hard if you haven't been uh, cultivating that. Yeah,
0: 100%. I would say um, one thing that, like, whenever people are like, oh, uh, I've gotten, like, probably four or five times online where people are like, man, you just seem like you have, like, a bone to pick or you're, like, angry with, like, modern management. I don't actually really ever feel that way. But the the number one thing that does, like, approach anger when I think about like conventional management is those the types of people that like for no logical or data driven reason they like want to limit your ability to do stuff like what you're describing because I agree with you like I don't know if you follow Daniel I think it's Daniel Crosby on Twitter he's like a financial it's like a financial analyst and Alabama or something or Atlanta but he has like a lot of data (coughs) research tweets about success and like just like how we approach it like he's tweeted out some stuff that you've put in newsletters of yours but like he had something the other day where it was like you know these are the 10 things that really matter to people if you look at a bunch of different studies and then these are things that don't really have any impact on uh, self-perception. And like one of them was like, you know, standard, like basically a lot of standard markers of success are bullshit. Right. So what I always hated about management is like, if you want to cut out to see somebody at 2 PM, like the goal of work is supposed to be like productivity or shit getting done. So if the stuff is still getting done, Like where you are at a given time should never matter. And, but you run into like all these managers that like do care about that probably because it's a control device for them. And that's the only part of, uh, dealing with management that ever made me like
1: actually angry, you know, like I get people. Yeah, go ahead. I would even challenge you there. I, I'm starting to think that nobody actually thinks these things. It's just that we we think people think these things, right? I mean, there's models of human behavior that says we kind of act in like a game theory way, which is we're always trying to predict what people think, like what what we think they think rather than what they actually think. So it's like if you really talk to people, people are like, yeah, no money doesn't matter um i want to optimize for my family most people say this but i think people aren't sure that everyone else thinks this so they kind of just better be safe than sorry and work harder right have you read that uh have you read that
0: everybody lies book by that guy that works at google oh
1: yeah this this search Yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah so one of the uh one of the most striking things to me in that book, but people don't want to talk about it because it's quote unquote salacious, Um, but it kind of goes to your point, is people at Google, when they overlapped um, porn searches with like uh, swipe apps, like it kind of points to this whole thing, like men search for like, bigger women or like really petite women, but then they only swipe like a certain type of woman in
1: dating. Oh, wow. Them, right? That's fascinating. Right, yeah, yeah, And kind it, of the same thing. Yeah. It's the uh, it's so, like, so I feel like you could write an article about this. It's like so we search, do. we search for happiness, but swipe on shitty jobs.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like, it, it aligns almost the same way. So it's like, um, they had a guy from Cal Berkeley who's a psych, like psychotherapist, psychiatrist whatever, psychiatrist, I guess. And he interviewed some of the men in this study. And I think he did like hypnosis with a couple of them. And basically like when the dudes in this study were like at their most vulnerable or exposed, they would tell him like, okay, I swipe a certain type of woman because it matters to me like what my dad is going to think about her, what my friends are going to think about her sheerly from a superficial standpoint. Whereas if that stuff didn't matter, like there, there could be like a overweight girl in the corner that has like the perfect personality alignment for you to find like happiness in a relationship, but you would never pursue it because like, again, it's almost like game theory. Like we're trying to predict what others are going to feel or think about our actions, right? Instead of just like going with the action that would make the most logical sense for us at the time. And yeah. that's like, it's kind of a crazy thing about humanity at the broadest level, you know?
1: Well, yeah. And I think this gets back to, I probably went through a trajectory of actually being pretty angry at the working world. Mm-hmm. I think I was in the thick of it. I was doing consulting work and I was doing deep research on organizations. While at the right. same time the organizations I was helping were ignoring <laughs> that information, right? Yep. But I realized over time that a lot and this is from digging deeper into culture too, a lot of culture is solidified so deeply um that it's going to be really hard to change these norms and one of these one of these almost like widespread cultural beliefs is that you shouldn't talk about struggling at work and i i think that's changing though it's going to take a long time and i think part of that is making people realize that one you don't need to work 40 hour week or 60 hour week to get great work done Two, people are really struggling and aren't able to make their lives work. And three, it's just we need to reimagine kind of work, which is where I'm coming from. And I think I've shifted to more optimistic um, tone. I'm seeing signs that like places are starting to get it, like people wow. are exper- experimenting with the four day work week, five, yep. six hour days. Remote, I think remote work is kind of like a bait and switch for thinking about these things, right? Um, but
0: I agree that there are some positive developments, probably more than half of organizations still quote unquote don't get it, but I do think you're starting to see you're starting to see scale on some positive things, and it's also like I think more people, this is going to sound weird maybe, but I think more people are becoming cognizant of like double standards. Like I had this thing on LinkedIn the other day and it got like 35,000 views and like all these comments because I think it like cut cut to the quick of something for people. It's like if you've ever worked in a midsize to enterprise company, like any good salesperson in that company Nobody cares where they are at any given time as long as their numbers are okay, right? I worked at a place in New York. Right. And I went to like a beer bar to have lunch with my friend and like some top sales guy was like basically like getting shit faced by himself and like nobody would ever question that, right? So we we like allow it in certain pockets if they touch revenue or they face like a, a productive area. But then like if a random like SEO person or like marketing manager wants to like leave for two hours, they might get pushback, right? So I think you're starting to see in some places that people realize like, okay, we've always afforded this kind of like flexibility to certain groups that we viewed as like economically more productive so like as long as work is getting done it makes sense to afford that to others and I do also think and I've seen more literature on this with people living longer I think more people are dealing with like the aging parents um, component which is deeply tied to work and I think like Childcare is different because people have been trying to juggle uh children and working for generations now. But I think the aging parents thing, while it's been around for generations, it's more pronounced probably in the last decade. And it's like it's a very well, there's deep...
1: no there's no public school to send your aging parent to, right? Right. They... right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and uh, it's that hits close to home too because i think my mother is taking care of her mother um and it's because she was able to leave her job earlier right, mostly because right, my dad's working right um but i mean our generation is definitely gonna have to deal with that like our parents uh, are gonna live forever <laughs>
0: yeah yeah um, and
1: but, it's like um, that
0: uh that's the thing too is like Aging parents is like even the worst, like most dicti- d- dictator type manager. You can't really, you can't really like push back on that. Like if somebody needs flexibility because their mom is in her eighties or whatever, like I think even real asshole managers don't really have a lot of <laughs> rope on that one, right. you know. Yeah. So I think that probably opens it up to one thing I was going to ask him what you were saying before, this like got more pronounced to me. I was doing a lot of stuff in like late 2018 with some like HR tech companies. And I did one project with like Amazon and a lot of these companies are hiring like academics like Amazon, I think has like North of a hundred conventional academics on staff now. Um, And one thing I noticed like on three or four projects I did in twenty late 2018 is like what you were saying about culture being embedded and like you doing deep research but then the organizations ignoring it. I feel like there was this huge dichotomy between how academic people think, approach things and perceive things and then how a standard person that would get to like a VP or higher level, like that mindset and personality, they're almost like diametrically opposed in some ways. So like I saw the same thing. There's like a company that does like recruiting software technology. And I was doing a couple projects with them and they're like IO psych, like economics PhDs who their CEO had hired. Like they would bring him like legitimate stuff. And he would basically be like, well, I have experience in this vertical. Like, I trust my gut. And this guy with, like, a PhD in economics from Duke would be like, well, why am I, like, on this staff? So what I want to know is, like, do do you think that they're almost, like, diametrically opposed, like, the way that a Hmm. research-oriented academic person would come at work versus how someone with the mindset of, like, hyperscaling a company. Like I just always think of them as so different that the two sides can't even have a proper conversation, but maybe you've seen like positive uh, aspects of that along your journey.
1: Yeah. So probably a couple things with that. I think senior executives are in their positions to make decisions and avoid mistakes. Right. right. Yep. So And communicate to their teams. So you don't want to overcomplicate things. I think actually a good executive is able to eliminate a lot of additional initiatives or things and kind of just focus on what's already working. Um, I think like HR gets into this challenge where they come up with like all these things they want to do to the organization and (laughs) organizations yeah. are complex systems so there's all these second order effects so i i actually might side with the person that doesn't implement any initiatives yeah. just for like simplicity's sake Yep. now that, uh that's a
0: i don't know if you've done some stuff with andy grove that's a big andy grove people that like yeah, work, right. right about him well like my favorite andy grove thing then we can get back to that is like um good managers like should inherently make themselves redundant, you know, like you should, there should be no excessive need for you to be a manager if you're actually good at it, (laughs) you know? And like, I think that gets way lost in how people conceptualize work.
1: Right. Um, And I think the, the things I would say about work are a lot of the things we know that work are so simple and this is the problem I think a lot of companies want the shiny new object right human motivation like self-determination theory autonomy mastery and purpose it works right however I think where people should go deeper and just their awareness of how these things map onto an organization is understanding how does culture embed and can you even change it Like so many organizations are trying to adapt to mature cultures that can't actually be shifted, right? Um, So I think that's probably one component and getting a little more sophisticated about like what to remove and what you actually can control. I think that is probably more powerful than figuring out what are the complex initiatives to add on.
0: Yeah, I always found too, like, again, we were talking about this at the beginning, but there are people in almost every organization who are truly like deep thinkers, like they kind of want to understand broader purpose, like both individually and organizationally, they're into like thinking about some of these bigger questions. And then there are a lot of people in organizations who are just drones, like they don't want to get laid off, they want the paycheck to be there, right. And What I always notice, like different places I worked, you'll have either like an executive who may or may not be lip servicing the idea or like one of those deeper thinkers will propose this new initiative and there'll be like some rollout. It's like some rah, rah, rah thing. And then like the majority of the organization just like goes back to their desks and does like whatever they were doing, like the Tuesday before this thing happened, you know? So it's like, it's all, it was like, that was always the funniest, like, pivot to me was we would all gather together and have some big announcement of like, oh, we have this new, like, complicated strategic initiative, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, everybody would go back to their desk and it's like, well, this was my to-do list before that meeting, so let me just keep working on it. And it's like, there was... I don't know, I've heard it called like a strategy execution gap or whatever, but I think it's just like organizations are complex ecosystems and there are so many different types of people within them and their motivations are so different that I I agree with you. I think simplicity makes more sense than these like sweeping, complicated changes because I don't think those can ever really be embraced at scale, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I think you're at work 40 hours a week and you need to come up with stuff to do. Yeah. yeah. Part of it is a little like acting your role. Senior yeah. people need to make it look like they're trying stuff. Right. And like junior people need to look like they're following in, but it's kind of yeah. this like this gets back to the, people should just be honest about what they're doing. Yeah. Um but It would just be awkward if they got to the understanding of saying like, well, maybe we should just take Thursdays and Fridays off because we're not really doing that much.
0: Yeah, my friend works for uh, Anheuser-Busch in like ops or whatever, and he's probably like mid-level. And he told me once like to what we're talking about. He's like, you know, you, you look at like these reports and we're selling like 77% of the world's beer or whatever, like, things are going fine. People are getting paid. There's no question about payroll being met. Like, people are doing their stuff. And then he's like, and then every two weeks, like, some SVP comes and is like, this is what we're gonna try now. It's like, really, things are fine. We don't need to introduce a new initiative, right? But to your point, it's like, people need to People need to have something they can point to that, like, hey, I did this. I'm achieving this. I'm pushing this forward. And it's, like, in reality, with the way that, like, a Walmart or a Anheuser-Busch is set up at this point, like, probably a lot of people could take Thursday and Friday off, and, like, everything would be fine. Like, revenue would be met. Like, there wouldn't really be some huge negative repercussion. But again, it kind of goes back to the identity thing too, that we were talking about. It's like, I don't know if a lot of people who got Thursday and Friday off would like know how to fill that time. (laughs) So I think there's that too, you know? All right. So, uh, last thing I was going to ask you is just like, we've talked a little bit about this. Um, but in that period, like 25 to now, um, You've obviously lived on different continents. You've had a different kind of path than other people will have. What are some of the bigger things that you feel like you've taken away from the last 10 plus years or learned in that time? Um, and, I, you know, I'm like putting you on the spot with it so you don't have to have something revolutionary. But just like mm-hmm. what are, the, yeah, what are some of the things that you think have popped for you since maybe like mid-20s?
1: Yeah, so 25 years old, I went into business school at MIT. And I graduated and landed a really great job. And about one week into that job, I started getting sick. And over the next six months, my health basically deteriorated and fell apart. And then I spent the next year and a half recovering from what they figured out was a bunch of tick-borne diseases and Lyme disease and a couple others. And it was a brutal process that for me is what kind of killed off my work identity for me. And then emerging back from that, I was still kind of working in consulting and making it work and always trying to figure out how to have a more balanced, uh, work schedule, just cause I'd be exhausted and physically I had a lot of challenges, um, both mentally and just stamina wise. But, um, trying to make sense of like what life is and realizing that work wasn't who I was and but what was I and I think through that period I started writing more I started experimenting on the side with more stuff and eventually decided to leave my job that led me with free time and as we talked about before I didn't have people to hang out with at random hours in the day like people were just working all the time so I decided to move to Asia um I ended up coming here for a month and then decided to come here for a couple months and then decided to stay. Um, so I've been in Asia for like 15 to the last 16 or 17 months, I think. And well, I was in the U S for a couple months this summer, but it's really led me to really explore like what could life be if it's not centered around work? That's kind of the question that influences my writing. It influences my day to day behavior. And just they've explored so much. So coming back to relationships, I've really tried to make that front and center, like prioritize friendship instead of prioritizing getting paid or getting gigs or getting money. Um, and I've probably like lost money, like quote unquote net worth has gone down since I've left my job, but, it, but not by much. I've kind of like stayed afloat or broken even. And I'm kind of looking at this as a like, I don't know, a real grad school for life of figuring out what is it all about? What is the kind of work I want to be doing for the next 20, 30 years and even longer? Like I'm not, I don't need to retire, I think, because I find I enjoy it. There's a lot of stuff I can do. I find a lot of people I can help. Um, so I'm really just trying to figure that out as I go.
0: Hope you enjoyed episode 10. Cannot actually believe I've done 10 of these so far, which is cool. 11 should be up later this week. It's another one with more of a work bent to it, but I'm going to try and edit it a little more personal sounding. On the personal front, if you listen this far, and by the way, that's a train outside of my apartment, my birthday is Thursday, November 7th, so feel free to holler at me online. Otherwise, keep reading and listening. Later. Thank you.